Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Awesome. Well, we're here at church. We've been in a series in the book of Philippians. My name is Ken Wild. I started this church 34 years ago. <laughs> Connie and I did together and uh, with our family and many of you, and uh, God has been with us. So I get the privilege of uh, speaking from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21 and chapter 4, verse 1. So I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray. Um, do you promise not to get mad at me today? There's a reason why I say that. Uh, because I'm going to say some things that might just challenge you. And uh, I think we need to be challenged. And the messages that have come that Chris and others have spoken have been very, very good. And they're all challenging, but I'm going to really challenge you this morning and talk about where we are as church and where we are at in our culture, how it's affecting us and what we need to do. Okay? Um, so let's pray. Father, we just pray blessing, understanding, anointing. We pray that you would stir our faith. I pray you'd let the word do its work in our heart and motivate us through the word of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going to read out of the ESV. It says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Notice this, the word mature. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In this, in this portion of scripture, Paul is admonishing the people of Philippi to press on to move into the thing. They haven't attained yet, and they need to press towards things that uh, he's been talking to them about. And they were not to take the, the scripture that talks about their, their 
Don't let their belly guide them. In other words, don't let their appetites guide them. I want to tell you right now, because see, Paul was talking about his culture at that time in Philippi, which was a Roman culture. And what he was saying, don't get your your trust in the government and how the government's going to help you. Get your trust in the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God will help you. And he's saying, don't let your appetite be that which would, uh, which would just be an appetite for everything. In fact, the, the things that, the immorality and the things that would, would come against you, don't let that, let that overtake you. And he was, he was admonishing them not to do that. So I'm here today and I'm going to admonish you not to get involved in certain cultural things that have taken over. Now, Lord help me. We have two parallel uh, tracks. We have the church track and we have the culture track. And God says, uh, and you will always, you're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So we have this culture track that is always trying to, uh, you know, push through their thoughts and ideas. We have the church that's supposed to stand firm in the rule of God, the laws of God. But what has happened, and I'm going to try to get this, I believe that these parallel tracks, the world's culture has actually influenced the church culture. And even though we parallel, we've gone, you know, parallel with each other, we've got to beware of what is happening. And that's what Paul was doing. He said, beware of this because some things are happening that are not good. So I'm going to talk to you about some things, and I'm not beating on you. Um, because I'm, I'm preaching to me and all of us. I think we've got to be aware of some things so we can uh, avoid certain, certain things and push ourselves into certain things that God wants. Because he said, I, I'm forgetting everything that's behind, I want to press towards the mark. I remember in high school, um, I ran track and I ran the high hurdles. And I can remember getting, the, getting in the blocks at the beginning of the high hurdles, they were as 120 yard high hurdles at that time. And I can remember there were 10 of them. And I can remember getting in the blocks and I'd look down as I got in the blocks, I'd look down those 10 hurdles and I'm every time, every time I think, what am I doing? It, it looked impossible. It looked like I was gonna kill myself. And so, but you, you do it because you practiced for it. And so I would press toward the mark. So I'd, the gun would go off, you would start running, and in 16.4 seconds you'd be at the end. And it was fast. And it was usually pretty good. Unless you hit a, hur a hurdle or two. But normally it, it turned out all right. And, but you had to press. And as you got towards the end, you strained. You strained to push. And you'd always push your, your chest against it to to push through at the, at, the very, at the very last. Paul is telling us, you, you, you can't be, be comparing yourselves among yourselves. You've got to strain toward the mark of the high, high calling of Christ Jesus. Yeah. We, we've, got, we've got a big problem in, in the culture. Everybody's comparing themselves with everybody. And, and uh, social media doesn't help that. It hinders that. Everybody's comparing themselves, how they look and how they, you know, this. But can I just tell you, everything, everything is put on Facebook or Instagram. It's always the best. They didn't take a picture of themselves when they got out of bed. They didn't take a picture when, you know, things are going bad or they were depressed. They don't do that. Everything's best. 
But God is saying, don't compare yourselves among each other. Compare yourselves to me. Strain toward the mark that I've given you personally. You have an individual pursuit that God wants you to take a hold of. So, as I've been, as I kind of prepared for this, I, I began to realize something. And I began, I, I read a lot of uh, sociologists and psychologists about, uh, about America today and what's happening. There's a new term that has just been put in the Webster's Dictionary. The term is adulting. The term is adulting. And I began to read and study this. Sociologists have, have notated this. It's, adulting simply is engaging in adult behavior. That's what it is. And every, they, they, young people talk to each other. Are you adulting today? Are you engaging in adult behavior like, I, that doesn't even comprehend in my brain, you know, but, but what is happening in the past, now this is what is occurring in our culture, in the past, leaving childhood and becoming an adult, that was actually quite clear. It was clear. But what has happened in the culture now, and it's, and I'm not, it's not a generational thing as much as it is a cultural thing. And I'm not, it's not young people or old people. Everybody needs to understand this. We now have delayed grown-ups and adult children who really don't want to grow up. Now, this is true. Sociologists will tell you this. What, what we have in America is a collective coming-of-age crisis. Now, here we have a parallel track. Here's the culture. Here's the church. It's affecting the church. We have a collective crisis in the church of coming of age. We don't want to get into the spiritual disciplines. We don't want to become an adult. We don't want to grow in the ways of God. That's why Paul is pushing us and saying, you got to strain toward the mark of the high calling. It does, sometimes it doesn't feel good. Chris did the best message I've ever heard on, on, on suffering. You know, we're going to suffer, but suffering is actually good. It pushes you towards, towards something. I had to go work out Friday. I told Connie as I went out the door, I don't like working out. <laughs> you know, I just don't. I don't like it. I don't like how I feel. But then when I get done, I, oh, that, was, that wasn't too bad, you know. The next day or so, it's a little sore. But, but you, you understand what I'm saying. We need to, we need to strain towards this. We are living in an America of perpetual adolescence. Perpetual adolescence. Kids don't know how to become adults because of all the cultural influence. I, I heard this story. This is interesting. A president of a mid, mid, uh, in the mid, mid, uh, uh, middle states of the United States, this guy was a president of a liberal arts college, and he, he asked, this was just a couple of years ago, he asked some 18 and 19-year-olds to put up a Christmas tree during Christmas time in the foyer of the, I think it was the, the athletic uh, arena. And so he said, the, the, dec the tree's over there, decorations, everything. And so they, they, they got the tree and the decorations, and they put it up in the middle of the, of the foyer there, and, and they put the decorations on. And while they were, they were, they just got done, they were looking at it, and a, a vice president came by, and he looked at it, and he was just shocked. Because the decorations only went up about eight feet. They said, well, you haven't finished. 
Well, we don't, we can't figure out how to get it up at the top of the tree. He says, don't you, don't you, can't you find a, a ladder? Isn't there a ladder around? Well, we didn't think about that. And the, the whole point was they didn't have initiative to understand the solutions necessary to complete a project. And that, in that, in my mind, that is the, in a sense, that is the curse of this generation. The, the failure isn't necessarily about lacking brains. The failure is will and initiative about seeing things through to completion. Well, I remember when I was young, uh, this was drilled into me. And again, this isn't just a, cult, uh, a generational thing, but I can remember you always complete what you begin, even if it's hard. In fact, that's the best time you push through when it's hard. You get the thing done because that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, because you attempt and you, you finish hard things even when you don't want to. And, and I, I'm telling you today, we need to push through things we don't want to do. And in fact, that's when you do need to push through things. Because there are times you don't want to read the word. There's times you don't want to pray. But you push through because that's what's going to make you that e e e person of grit and initiative. We become too much, you know, fuzzy-headed in many ways when actually real-world problems need to be solved. There's, and what I think has happened to the generations and to all of us, if we're not careful, there's a real passivity that has come to our nation. And that has actually influenced the church. Now, passive, what do I mean by that? The opposite of passionate. Where, where we have trained people to be passive, just to watch. We watch games. We watch this. We watch our screens on our, our iPhones. We watch, we watch things on our iPads, our computers. Everything is about the screen and watching and never participating. You, you, Facebook and social media makes you not in, integrate with people by face-to-face -face contact. And therefore, you don't know how to solve solutions and problems. And you will say things you shouldn't be saying. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm telling you, this is, and I'm not just, these are all the things that we use for tools. That's what they are. They're tools. They're not in of themselves good or bad. But what has happened, there's a real passivity and it's happened to our kids. Good kids with good, uh, good parents and, and, you know, polite and everything else doing well in school. They, they, they become passive, almost zombie-like. I didn't even know what a zombie was until I got older. I never heard of a zombie when I was a kid. Really, I, I, not about you guys, but I didn't know what a zombie was. And, but, but what has happened is kids' screen time gives kids a zombie-like passivity. And what happens is if they have too much screen time, now there's nothing wrong with having screen time to some degree, but if there's too much of that, what will happen was, then sociologists have detected this, there will be a decline of initiative and liveliness. You, I don't know if you understand this, but everybody is much happier when they are relating to people. When you're engaging in, in games or or activities, or sports, or projects, or doing something, doing something. Because what it, ha what, what it does, it stirs up 
your imagination and the inner person who you are of your soul that God made you. God gave you your imagination in, on purpose so you would be able to imagine things, do them, speak them, and project them through to completion. That's just how God made us. But what we're doing is we're sacrificing that. So what has happened, they, I find children are much happier when they're, when they're involved in things with other kids. They're just happier. But when, they, when they're on the screen, they, they, they seem tired and listless. Even the good kids. I mean, they just, we all be, get, get that way if we're not careful. And what, what we're doing is we're entertaining ourselves to death. Well, I just, you know, I've, if you want to be offended about this, then you really need this message. <laughs> but I'm, I'm telling you, our culture is entertaining ourselves. Our, our goal is entertainment. Entertaining ourselves instead of, you know, doing things to in, improve ourselves. There is a crisis of idleness and passive drift that we've got to see that God wants to address. Is this making sense? I'm not through yet. But I, I, I feel that if this parallel track, the culture of the world has influenced the culture of the church instead of vice versa. And if we're not careful, it will, be, it will get so bad that we will not be able to reverse it. Now, let me prove something. This is fascinating to me. I've been in the church for 60, I'm 67 years old. I know I only look 66, but <laughs> as Joe said, what were you, 54 to 30? Yeah, whatever. I've been in the church all my life, and I've seen a whole lot of things. But this is fascinating. When I was a kid, I grew up in the church. We were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and usually a weekend night we were in church receiving some kind of instruction or in prayer meetings. Hours, hours a week. Today, you're in church an hour and a half, maybe, for a week. My contention is, there's no way that you can get enough of God in an hour and a half. Now, I'm not saying that church is the only thing. Church should be the instrument by which it motivates you to go from here and study God's word and pray on your own. And if you're not doing that, you're not receiving. And I'm not, I can ask this question, how much time do you spend during the week reading and praying? I don't answer that, please. I don't want to be discouraged today. <laughs> but that's, that the, the issue is church should be the motivational factor to do that. Now, Having said that, I think we need to up something about church. Now sociologists tell us and theologians tell us that church people think that they are committed if they go two times a month. It's getting less and less and less. Now again, church isn't the only thing. I'm, I, and I hope you don't think I'm an old fuddy-duddy up here telling I kind of am an old fuddy-duddy just telling you that <laughs> But what we need to do is, is realize what is, the, what is God trying to tell us? What is scripture trying, trying to motivate us to do? Strain towards the mark of the high calling. Not passively drip and fall and whatever towards it. We strain towards it. We move towards it. And forgetting everything behind, we press towards that. Now, does that, does that make sense? So I, I see a, a, a culture of the church that has just 
there was a book that, the, the dumbing down of this generation. I think we've dumbed down this, the, the church culture. We just dumbed it down. Now, I don't think that's anybody's fault. I just think it's what's happened. But what I think we need to do, if the enemy comes in like a flood, God wants to raise up a standard. What if the church raises up another standard? Do you know what I think? I think the, I think the world would turn around when they see a church that is operating like a church should be. And it would, it would begin to motivate them. They would, they would want a flock to come to the church because they see a people committed and committed to loving and serving others. But if we're not careful, we'll become passive. Now, does this make sense so far? Okay, I'm not done. It says I have 19 minutes, but I'm going to make that about 39 minutes, okay? Now, I'm going to try to, I'm try to describe this sociologically, spiritually, institutionally, even politically. You have seen a lot of stuff happening in the nation over the last few weeks, few months. Everything's coming out of woodwork. That's probably good. But let me, let me just share something with you about the nation. Because that's my, that's my wheelhouse. We are the first nation in the world that was established as a creedal nation. A creedal nation. In other words, we came together not out of, an, of a shared ethnicity, but as a shared ideas about freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, set with dignity and freedom, not ruled by an elite class. It was a rule of law. And it's the first nation that ever was established under creeds, not ethnicity. That's why I am really, I can see what the enemy's doing. He's trying to divide us by our color. What's that got to do with anything? Because we're all the same creed. God established his, the, the, the laws of his, of his kingdom in our hearts. And we're to, we, are, we come around that. That's why you, we look at Revelation. Everything in, in heaven is about the tribes and everyone comes together, all colors, all tribes, all families, all together under one roof, under one, they're all one family. But what the enemy is trying to do is divide us by the color of our skin or our ethnicity, and we can't let that happen. When people start talking about black and white and brown, get away from me. It's not about that. It's about your heart and what God is doing in you. I better get off that or I'll just really... But see, that's where we're the first creedal nation. That's why we've got to stop this, this slow movement towards all this, this racial divide. Anybody that starts talking about races, and that is, that is anti-God. It's anti-God. It's anti-Christ. God, God establishes his rule by his laws that are set in our hearts. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. We're a, we're a, and the same thing is true of the church. We're here today because we believe in God and what he's doing in our lives. The, the, oh Lord, help me with all my thoughts. Uh, our, our kids, because of all this, our kids seem to be distracted and drifting. 
You know what we need? We need a generation of young people who are grittier, stronger, more empowered with God's word, self-sufficient, ready to serve. We, we, we need to see them arrive at adulthood as fully formed, resilient, problem-solving, who were called to love and serve our neighbors. That's what the king, that's what the gospel news is, loving and serving. And the problem is when we give into this passive move of our culture, and remember the parallel uh, culture in the church, when we give into that, we become narcissists. The scourge of our time is narcissism. And the, the, the counter to narcissism is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it tells you to serve. It tells you to go love. tells you to get out of yourself. Whoa, this is good. That's the only way it'll counter that narcissism because it's a, it's a self-seeking thing. And when you see yourself seeking things for yourself, you, got, you have to learn immediately to go serve somebody, help somebody, pray for somebody, do something for somebody. Get out of yourself. If we don't, the, 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 the church will become like all other cultures, nations will fall aside. But I believe God's calling us up. That's what Paul was telling him in this portion of scripture. He's saying, don't let your citizenship be in, be in the Roman thinking. Don't, and don't let our citizenship be in the culture or even in the government. The government's not going to solve your problem. Jesus is going to solve our problems. And the church needs to be a standard. It says in there's, there's three places. It says in, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 or so, it talks about, and in the last days... The, the nations are going to come to the top of the mountains where the church is. The church is going to be a leading guide to the nations to bring them to, to the results of God's, God's will and purpose. That's why we've got to strain. We've got to start praying and reading and, and doing the things of the, in the kingdom that's right and good. Can you say amen? amen. So here, here we got to do a couple things. we got to start overcoming the cultural creep and the peer pressure. Would you just stop being influenced by all the, all this? There, there's much, there's way too much uh, emphasis on celebrity. Really bugs me. Don't, we need to have our celebrity is Jesus. That's who I I want to model after. And the problem in the church I've already mentioned, but the problem is we compare ourselves among ourselves too much. And we, when we celebrate celebrities, what we're doing, we're modeling ourselves and trying to compare ourselves with them. We need to celebrate Jesus. He's the one we need to model. So we need to overcome that. We also need to have a, we need to renew our spiritual work ethics. Our spiritual work ethics. How much are you reading and praying during the week? Now, I'm not talking about Sunday, it's easy. Get up here, oh yeah, Pastor Ken, that's great. Let me ask you a question. What? What was the message on last Sunday? Please don't raise your hands. Because most of you probably, I can't remember it. Well, you know, I have a, how many of you have iPhones or Androids? Well, you know what? I have a little app in here. It's called Notes. <laughs> Do you know I have every one of Chris's messages that he's spoken since he was 20-something? I have them all in here. Don't tell him, but I'm going to give him a Christmas present of all his notes this, this Christmas. I'm going to print them all out. 
Don't tell him. Because I have them all in here. And I go back and, and I read things that, that are important to, to, to follow up on it and, and think about and meditate on. Are you, is this making sense? So I want, I want, I'm challenging you, start renewing spiritual disciplines. The third thing we've got to do is we have to uh, resist consumption. Stop being a consumer. You know, I know you got to buy things to live. I'm not talking about that. Because, but consumption is not the key to your happiness. Buying a bigger car, a bigger this, a bigger house, or bigger the whatever is not the key to happiness. Production is the key to happiness. Oh, I don't want to, Lord, I can't go that way or I'll get off a little bit. But maybe I will a little bit. That's why our nation has become so self-centered because we're not a producing nation anymore. We got to have production is the key to happiness. In other words, meaningful work that actually serves and benefits a neighbor or someone else. This contributes to long-term happiness. This is what sociologists tell us. And it, and it, and it contributes to well-being. Consumption is just consuming. And you need, to, you need to learn to be a producer, a producer of, in the spiritual sense, a producer of life talk, a producer of prayers for others, a producer of encouragement, an exhorter, and all these different things. But what has happened is we become trapped in this mundane modality of, of, uh, of what I was just talking about, of being a consumer, the fourth thing we need to do is determine the difference between need and want. Can I just tell you, most of what we think we need, we don't need. We just want. And let's, let's, make a, let's allow God to start speaking to us about helping others instead of just heaping onto our wants. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. Here's a one, two, three, four. This is the fifth thing. You need to start becoming truly biblically literate. I'm saying this to me. I'm saying this to us. In other words, can I just tell you, you need to read more. A pastor, I don't like to read. Well, then they have this wonderful thing they do now. It's called audible listening. Every book you can listen to. In fact, you can get Tracy's book. She, she went and read the whole thing out. You can listen to her actually read her whole book. Isn't that cool that every, every book has that now? So if you are, well, I, I, I was never a good reader, Pastor Ken. Well, either learn to read or listen. Now, I'm a school teacher, so I understand these things. And I, was told, I told Chris this the other day. I had, a, I had a student in my class who was dyslexic. I decided to try something on him. I decided... Uh, this is a Christian school, and I helped start the Christian school. And I remember, I remember his name, everything about him. He was dyslexic, had a tough time learning in school. I said, uh, let's try something. Let's start memorizing scripture. So we started memorizing scripture. He became our best, our best student in memorization. And you know what happened? His dyslexia went away. Or at least was diminished. So he could actually 
read much better. I was astonished at the change. And it was just, a, it was just I just tried it. I'm telling you, there's something about becoming biblically literate in both the natural and the spiritual that can, that can really affect us. Okay. Oh, I don't want to get into that, but I want to, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That'll take me too far off course. Boy, I love just getting up here and talking though. So here's the issue, and I'm going to close with this. We have a decline in, in biblical and moral values in America. There's corruption scandals everywhere. You've seen it. What I call it is truth decay. Not tooth decay, but truth decay. I went into the dentist this week. I don't like the dentist, but I go in because they call me and they harass me until I do. <laughs> so I go in and I sit in that chair and I think, why am I here? But they, they first of all go through this thing and they have one, one person sitting there notating things and the other one is going over every tooth and saying, three, th three, two, three. Three, two, two. Four, two, two. And they go down and it gets to five, four, four, five, five, five. Uh oh. You see, I have, uh, I still have my wisdom teeth, my, my molars. And uh, my, my dentist, the, uh, the hygienist said, Boy, you, 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 you carry your teeth really well. You have a big mouth. And I, <laughs> Thanks a lot for the compliment. But she says, back, I have no problem with the cleaning here. It's back there. She says, you're going to have to do a better job, work on it, get a water pick, do all this. And I try with, I have, you know, flossing stuff and try to get it. But she says, there's one of them that's seven now. I go, oh, God. No. Tooth decay. Tooth decay. If you're not careful, tooth decay will come. Can I tell you in America, if we don't do a job of cleaning, yeah. we'll have truth decay. And it will affect us. We'll have to have a new set of teeth or something. New set of truth. Truth decay is like tooth decay. It happens slowly at first. But if you don't get consistent cleaning, it'll eventually cause you to lose your teeth. And if we don't get some truth cleaning in America, we will lose what we have. Last 40, 60 years, we've seen this slow degradation. I can tell you what, I, I, it's just amazing. You watch certain stories on TV. For instance, there was a jury that was deadlocked a few years ago and had to dismiss a case in which a woman cut off the arms of her 18-month-old baby because they said this woman didn't know the difference between right and wrong. There's, there's become a no, no such thing as truth. And there's relativism. And they let her go because she didn't know the difference between right and wrong. Now, the Bible says it's the truth will set you free. He didn't say a truth will set you free. He says the truth will set you free. And that's in here. That's all in the book. There's, and let me address a couple things. There's what I call today a sincerity myth. It doesn't, this, this myth is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. What? But that's, a, that's the myth that's out there. There's also the situational myth. It doesn't really matter what you believe because it all depends upon the circumstances. 
In whatever situation you find, you can just kind of figure it out. There are no absolutes. But I'm telling you right now, our whole culture is built, or our nation is built on the idea that there are absolutes. But this idea of no absolutes is unworkable and irrational. The world operates on absolutes every single minute of the day. When you go to the pharmacist, you don't go to him and say, well, just give me anything. No, you have a prescription that you hand to him and you have to almost sign over your life sometimes. You get the prescription. And it's the same way in all areas. When a rocket is launched to the moon, they don't want it to come near the moon. They want it to hit the moon. The absolutes. How about stoplights? It's an absolute. If you go through it, you get stopped. It's an absolute. They're, they're, this whole thing about, you know, just uh, uh, there are no absolute values and we can just tolerate things. Today, people value tolerance more than they value absolutes. The supreme value in our culture has become tolerance, but then it's just tolerance for what they tolerate. You notice that? One, one person can say this moon is made out of Swiss cheese and another person says the moon is made out of rocks. One of them is wrong and one's right. There's, there's absolutes and there's signs of truth decay in our culture. There's, and I'll just give you a few of them and I'm going to close. There's immaturity. There's great immaturity. And this is why I talked about this. And this is why I think the Bible and the word of God and prayer is going to stir us to become more like him. There's immaturity, and, and we need to see that God is moving us out of an immature to a mature society, and it's the church that's going to lead the charge. It certainly isn't the government. They're so immature, they've done all those stupid things. We need to act like adults. Start adulting right. <laughs> and we, because we, we have all these rights, and we don't have any responsibilities. Ephesians 4, 4 says, let us no longer be like children forever changing our minds about what we believe because someone has told us something different or has cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like truth. Have you noticed children are basically irresponsible? We need to become mature believers and get out of adolescence. Let's don't remain adolescents as adults in the church. There's a problem with immorality. It's another truth decay. Do whatever I, I want to do. Ephesians 4.19 says they don't care anymore about right and wrong. And they, give, they have given themselves over to immoral ways. Their lives are filled with all kinds of impurity and greed. And we see all these. We have uh, the problem with illegality now, which there, there's no right or wrong. Every, everything can be considered legal. That's why people fight this. This is why they don't want absolutes. Do you know laws are simply, I tell people this, and they didn't even believe it in D.C. Laws are simply a codification of someone's morals. That's what it is. It's a codification. It's a law of someone's morals. And the, the problem, if you remember, remember the Titanic? You know why they didn't think the Titanic would, would, would sink? Because it was compartmentalized. Before that time, they had one hole. And if the hole got breached and water came in it, they knew where they were going to sink. But with the Titanic, they had all these compartments and they could seal them off and they didn't think, they, they thought they were invincible. They didn't realize that that isn't, that doesn't save you from, from drowning either. And what happens in our lives, we compartmentalize our lives. We say, well, that won't hurt me. That won't hurt me. That won't hurt me. I'm telling you, you're going to sink. Wow, this is really good today. This, that, that another, 
Another problem with, with a, a sign of this is idolatry. Uh, truth decay is I begin to worship and, and, and utilize other things, wealth, success, physical beauty, and uh, athletic ability or intelligence or whatever. Today's right has become wrong and black has become white. And the Old Testament tells us this would happen. But I'm telling you, God is, is going to raise up a church that can stand against this. And I want to be part of that church. There's, there's one more thing that we can see. Is it's, it's injustice. Isaiah 59, 1 through 4. Our courts oppose people who are righteous. And justice is nowhere to be found. Truth falls dead in the streets and fairness has been outlawed. We see this all over the courts now. But I'm telling you, God's going to raise up a standard. Okay, here's the conclusion. You with me? Here's the conclusion. We need to get transformed. We need to have a transformation. A spiritual transformation of an entire nation begins with the spiritual transformation of a single life. If I start here, you start there, I'm only responsible for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to me today. I'm only responsible, and if I'm responsible for me and I start changing my life and transforming, it begins with me, begins with you, and then all of a sudden something happens. Remember the story of Gideon? The story of Gideon in the book of Judges? God comes to him and says, I want to use you, mighty man of God, and he looks around saying, who's the mighty man of God around here? I'm the least, I'm of the least tribe, and I'm of the least of the least tribe. And God says, no, I want to use you. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. I'm telling you right now, God is saying to the church, and you're part of the church, I'm going to save Midian. I'm going to save the slave, those who have put us in slavery by your hand. And remember the story, he started with, well, I got to have a lot of guys then. So he gets 32,000. God says, that's too many. Went down to 300. He saved Israel with 300 men. What if we had 300 sold out, bought into the plan, people in capital who would say, let's do it. Let's start believing God's word and standing on it and changing the culture around us, not giving in to all this, all this truth decay and be, believing that God's cleaning us out and putting us into place where we can be using. What if that happened? Martin Luther said, give me 100 men who were totally sold out to God and I'll change the world. I've been waiting for that time. Can we, can we see ourselves towards that? Yeah. I think God's, uh, God's doing something in our midst. Right. Now, there's a Malcolm Gladwell who's a theologian of sorts. He said there's what they call the law of the few. It means that an epidemic begins with a very small group of exceptional people who are carries, carriers of an infectious agent. He's using that in the positive. And he calls it a stickiness factor. And the contagious nature of, of the virus itself, if so contained in a person so powerfully, can infect so many people very, very quickly. That's why they try to isolate people who come from other nations who have an infectious disease, because it spreads real quick. If we, get, if we get sticky, if we get filled with this infectious goodness of God, what might happen? Come on. It all depends upon, you know, God, I think God has a tipping point. God has tipping points. 
that does not depend upon the masses of the culture. It depends upon the commitment and the environment of the church itself. And are we receptive or resistance to God's call? Will the, will the church be the exceptional few who can spread this epidemic of God's goodness, his revival? It could spread a thousand miles overnight with single step. Just imagine a nation where every, every single human life is valued, where, where children are protected and raised in nurturing environment, where there are traffic jams on Sunday morning. So we got to take a stand. The last verse that I read, Chapter four, verse one says, take a stand. We gotta take a stand. We have to do this. We must take a stand in the righteous raising of our children. Take a stand by becoming involved. Take a stand by, by giving ourselves to the spiritual disciplines. If you do not, you will give in to the culture automatically. It will overcome you. Let me just take, tell you part of the taking, taking of the stand. Connie and I have been talking about this and we've been talking with this with the leadership team. We wanna do something in, in two weeks from today. I believe and this is just for this generation, because I can't do everybody, but I believe that God wants to use my generation, all those around us, to help change things. I'm not getting put out to pasture. Okay? And you shouldn't be either. We want to ask those who are 50 years, 55 years of age and older to join us next two weeks from today after second service if you're that age group, we wanna, we wanna celebrate what God has done for us, but I'm gonna give you a, a, a marching plan. What God is gonna do, or what he has spoken to us. Would you join me in that? How many, how many 50 and older do we have here today? Praise God. Okay, you heard, two weeks from today, after second service, we're gonna have lunch together. We'll give you more details. But we gotta take a stand, and I think, if I would say, I have, to, I have to be responsible for me and we have to influence and mentor the next generation, what if my generation, our generation, start mentoring the younger generation who are fatherless? It's really what, what it's become. It's a fatherless generation. Do you know that, I just, I just saw these statistics, three out of 10 babies born in, in the Caucasian community are born out of wedlock, seven out of 10 in the black African-American community. And every, every group has statistics that aren't, just aren't good. In the, in the church, we've got to be fathers to the fatherless. We've got to bring these wonderful young people in who don't have a clue what's happened. But we have to have a plan. Now, I want you to, I'm closing with this. I know I've said that three times, but I get three closes. I'm going to read something to you. It's about the battle plan they, they did in Europe in I'm a historian, this is what I like to do. Imagine living in London as Hitler marches across Europe. Every day you hear reports of more fallen territory, Poland and Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, even France falls before the Nazis, all succumbing to this grinding German war machine. Soon there are 500,000 enemy soldiers stretched across the vast landscape of, of Northern Europe only 21 miles away from England. These, these Nazi soldiers eye your island across this narrow channel. You're left to these screaming uh, air raid sirens running for cover and, and, and going into the deep, damp 
subway tunnels. The enemy seems like they're gonna, they're invincible. They're gonna take it all over and you feel powerless. How do we fight back? And where, where do we even start to overcome this? The odds seem insurmountable. But two men, Roosevelt and Churchill, refused to accept defeat. Instead, they develop a plan. After looking at all possible angles, they construct the largest and most comprehensive counteroffensive of the war and dare I may say, of any war in any time. Their strategy becomes the turning point, the tipping point, an overwhelming response from which Hitler will never recover. 150,000 men invade with planes, parachutes, and boats of all sorts along a 50-mile stretch of the beach near Normandy. Commencing battle in the early morning hours of June 6, 1944, 5,000 boats, 1,500 tanks, 2 million tons of ammunition, and 11,000 allied aircraft all work together in a perfectly coordinated effort. First the high-flying bombers, then thousands of paratroopers dropping like flies from the sky, and then the landing craft filled with men and equipment. They keep coming and coming and coming, and by July, a month later, a million allied soldiers are staged for battle in the north of France. This is no half-hearted slap towards Hitler. This is the battle for a civilization. The world was at stake. And without, without, without a thorough, well-planned response, this tyrant called Hitler would rule the future. May I say this? Are we in any less danger now? We're at war. This is a battle for the soul of America, for the soul of the world, may I say. And the church, we can't be passive. We're going to stop this, this slow creep of passivity and just getting by and just, we got to be passionate for what God has placed in our hearts. We got to get into the word and prayer. We decided at the start of the year in 2018, we're going to have corporate prayer every day of the week. We're going to have another group organize corporate prayer. And there's something about corporate prayer because one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000, three can put, you know, the exponential notation goes up. What can happen if prayer happens? When we started the church in 1983, God spoke to us and said, you will have fruit through the power of prevailing prayer. We started to pray. And you know the result of that? I had a pastor come to me two weeks ago and he said, Pastor Ken, do you know your prayers in your church over the years, they've changed this, this community. I said, well, we started dialoguing about all the churches that have, because when we first came here, there were no planted churches. There, were, there just weren't a lot of churches. All of a sudden, all these church plants start coming up. We moved out here. We were the first church out here. And all of a sudden, you see all these churches around. Praise God. We prayed them all in. Let's do some more praying. See what God will do. Let's begin to energize ourselves. Get, get off of our rears and start doing what God has called us to do. Be motivated. In, encourage each other. Hold each other accountable for what the spiritual disciplines of what God is going to do. Learn the Bible. Learn what he, We're going to give classes. We've already decided all this. And as we start in 2018, we're going to give classes to equip you and get you ready. You've got to get ready. You've got to get prepared in your spirit for what is happening and not be, you know, creep over into the culture. Let the culture creep over into you. Can you say amen? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com. 